God is good all the time. Welcome to Christ Church. We are in week two of Jesus of Nazareth. A couple things you need to understand as we kind of enter into this. People in Jesus's day in the Galilee spoke Aramaic, but they wrote in Greek. So it's kind of weird. They, they spoke in a language that they did not write in. So the New Testament comes to us in a dialect of Greek called Koinea, but the people would have spoken Aramaic. Jesus would have been called in his own time, Yeshua Nazarea. And that just means Jesus of Nazareth. In this series, we're going to probe the Gospel of Matthew, particularly focusing on the Sermon on the Mount. My purpose in embracing this series is that even though Jesus may well get us, I don't think we get him at all. Jesus did not come to make us always feel better about ourselves. Jesus was a disruptor. He was a disrupting force. Nobody gets hung on a cross because they made everybody feel so good about themselves. Jesus disrupted the grip of Satan over this world. Jesus disrupted the power structure in his own time. And Jesus continues to disrupt everything in us that does not align with the values of the kingdom of God. I want you to know, Jesus does love on us. But sometimes Jesus shoves on us. Sometimes Jesus says, way to go. And sometimes Jesus said, you got a long way to go, but let's crack at it. In this series, I'm going to take Jesus' words at face value. And we're going to look at them in their own context. And we're going to see how much has been lost because we view those words through modern eyes. And then I'm going to pull them out of their own context and apply them to our time today. And when I'm done with this series, you're going to completely understand Why, when Jesus got done teaching, people either bowed before him as Lord or yelled, crucify him. Because Jesus does not leave us middle ground. He never intended to. Some years ago, a person came to study Christ Church. We had grown for 21 straight years. In our denomination at the time, nobody was really doing that very much. And they, they came in to study our church. And at the end of the study... I had a talk with the person. We had coffee and we're sort of going over what they thought and what they actually found. And and they said something to me I've never forgotten. He said, when I started this study, I thought that Christ Church was primarily evangelical. He said, what I've really found out is that Christ Church is first and foremost Midwestern. And I thought... That's, that's an interesting thought. It's really interesting. I've had so many people tell me, they said, you know, Shane, when I found out you were from Southern Illinois, I suddenly understood you a whole lot better. <laughs> the reality is we will better understand Jesus if we better understand where Jesus was from. You do realize Jesus didn't grow up in Muncie, Indiana, right? I mean, Jesus grew up in a very particular time and in a very particular place. So if we don't understand that time, and if we don't understand that place, we may get the big principles of Jesus' teaching, but we'll miss every single nuance. So let me tell you a little bit about Jesus' world. I don't know where your hometown is, 
But let me tell you about Jesus's hometown. He was from a small inland village called Nazareth in the Galilee region. The photographs that you see in the bumper before we start the sermon are from that region. That's what Jesus would have seen. In Jesus' day, Galilee was under Roman rule, locally ruled by King Herod Antipas, who was one of the sons of Herod the Great, the Herod of the Christmas story. People in this region tended to farm or fish, and there was an artisan class of which Jesus was a part. The Sea of Galilee at the time was a bustling commerce center, fishing villages all over its shores. It's one of the few places in the world that is less inhabited now than it was 2,000 years ago. But there were fishing villages all over its shores. Josephus tells us there were 230 licensed fishing boats crowding the lake. The Jezreel Valley to the west was and still is the breadbasket of Israel. It's where crops will grow. It's also called Armageddon. Galilee produced working class people. They were hard living, mainly Jewish, hot-blooded, and had revolutionary tendencies. The Galileans did not like Herod Antipas, and nobody liked the Romans. Two big cities in Jesus' time. One was Sepphoris, which was a Jewish city that was under heavy construction. I think it is 100% likely that Joseph and Jesus both worked in Sepphoris. The other was Tiberius. It was a Roman city named after the Roman emperor. No Jew would go to Tiberius because it was built over a graveyard and they felt that would desecrate them. Jesus is the product of this region. And you've got to understand the region if you're going to fully understand the nuanced teaching of Jesus. Jesus was real clear about his crowd. He was not going to appeal to straight up pagans like he had in Caesarea Philippi. He was not going to appeal to the buttoned down ultra-religious Jews down in Jerusalem. And he wasn't going to appeal to the Greco-Romans at Caesarea Maritima. You see, people who are thriving in the kingdom of this world are hardly interested in looking at a new kingdom. Jesus is followed by the disenfranchised, the unemployed, the sick, the demon-possessed, the poor and prostitutes, the pariahs, the zealots, the malcontents. Jesus is not a political revolutionary, but the people who followed him were the people of whom revolutions are always made, and that was always the rub. There's, it was sort of like, Jesus, if you're not a revolutionary, why are all these kind of people following you who are always wanting to revolt? On a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee, Jesus pulled his disciples aside while crowds were gathering, and he gave them some clear instruction about how to minister to desperate people. Because desperate people is who were following him. I believe with all of my heart, that the ministry of the church moving forward is going to be increasingly to minister to desperate people. You want to know why? Because there's so many more of them than there used to be. There is a desperation in our society I've never seen before. I don't know. I think there was some of it going into the pandemic. But people came out of the pandemic just fractured and on edge. Have you noticed how quickly people can lose it these days? 
Hey, have you noticed how few filters so many people have? People can just radiate at high frequencies and absolutely lose it in front of everyone. People are just fragile. They're on edge. People are desperate. I think the ministry of the church is going to be to minister and to reach out to desperate people because we are all desperate people. You see, what we have is what separates us. The material possessions we have is what separates us. You want to know what we share in common? Desperation. That's what we share. When Jesus pulled his disciples aside, he began with the Beatitudes, which suggested that when you are desperate, you're actually in the most blessed place of all. Because when you're desperate, you have no illusions that you're in control. When you're desperate, you understand how much you need God. And Jesus said anytime the illusions of control that we hold are shattered, anytime we realize that without God we don't have a chance, we are blessed. The disciples may well have been wondering, Jesus, this is all good and well, but why are you telling this to us? And then it had to occur to them, this is going to fall on us, isn't it? This is going to fall on us, isn't it? I wrote a book earlier in the year called That's Good News. And a lot of churches around the country have done book studies and sermon series and and evangelism initiatives based off of it. And I've talked to a lot of these pastors, and particularly these pastors when they're trying to recruit people to get in the book studies. And I'll say, how's the recruitment going? And they'll often tell me, a little bit slow. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, because people suspect something's going to be required of them after this book study. You know, you do a book study on on a lot of things. You get done and you go, well, wasn't that a fine book? You know, wasn't that nice? I really enjoyed that. You do a book study on evangelism, you start to suspect that something is going to be required of you. And when the disciples were hearing Jesus... It just had to be all over them. This is going to fall on us. All these people who are gathering to hear him speak, who are hoping for healing and to get their lives back, this is going to fall on us. And I'll bet you they leaned in. Jesus offers two metaphors to his disciples as he equips them to minister to desperate people. Number one, you were salt and you were light. I'm going to suggest that our modern understandings of salt and light make us miss Jesus's point entirely. So I want to go back and look at these things through ancient eyes, and then I want to pull them into modern times. Here we go. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Notice that Jesus did not say you could be, you used to be, you should be, or you might be. He said you are the salt of the earth. You are. That is who you are. In the same sense that people are blessed when their lives are blowing apart, Jesus reminds the disciples they are salt. When we think of salt, we think of an optional seasoning that that can possibly kill you. Right? You go to the doctor, you get a bad medical report, and they'll say, watch the salt. We might incorrectly think from this modern assumption that the role of Christians in the world is to up its blood pressure. That is not the point Jesus is making. 
So in order to understand this, we got to go back into Jesus' time. We have to stand where he stood. Let me give you five uses of salt in Galilee, circa AD 30, all right? Number one, flavoring. Same thing we have now. Salt added zest, seasoning, and flavor to things that would have been bland without it. Salt made things taste better. Let's face it, even today, who really wants to eat their roast goat without salt? All right, there you go. Number two, salt was medicinal. They rubbed it into wounds to fight infection. You say, why don't people do that today? Have you ever tried it? Because they found things that don't hurt nearly as bad that are a lot more effective. But in those days, they would rub salt into a wound. It's where we get, don't rub salt into a wound. But it had medicinal qualities. Salt hurt, but salt healed. Number three, preservative. This is a day before refrigeration. It's a day and a time where it's hotter than six kinds of smoke about eight months a year. The ability to preserve food is a matter of survival. Absolutely a matter of survival. Number four, specific to Galilee, salt was an economic necessity. Galilee is filled with a unique species of tilapia. We call it St. Peter's fish. Commercially extracted in the first century and the entire economy of Galilee revolved around it. The same way the entire economy of Detroit in the 60s revolved around automobiles. Fish were netted, dried, salted, packed into barrels, transported to the Mediterranean coast and exported all over the world. Tilapia from the Sea of Galilee were delicacies all over the Roman Empire. They also made a fish sauce called garum that they exported as well. So here's the bottom line. If you don't have salt in Galilee, you do not have an economy, period. You don't have an economy. The market for putrid fish is slim. Salt, absolutely essential. And then number five just fascinates me because let's face it, I'm a nerd. The Greeks thought salt had divine attributes. In fact, they call it theon. Theo is where we get the name of God. The study of God is called theology. They thought that salt had divine attributes. It, it wasn't just a metaphor for purity or goodness. They thought there was something divine in it. Salt stood for the divine or good in a person. It stood for the good or the divine in a culture. So maxims like those people are the salt of the earth or that person is worth their salt, that's where that comes from. Salt is what is good. And then Jesus says, if you're not salt, you're of no value. You have no value. Sodium chloride cannot technically lose its saltiness unless it is contaminated to the point that it chemically becomes something else. So salt is either salt or it isn't. And I'm gonna argue we're either Christians or we're not. We're either the church or we are not. If the church loses her focus on the centrality of Christ, 
her hopeful witness, her healing hope, or abandon scriptural Christianity, that church has chemically become something other than a church. You see, we are not a charity among charities. We are not an organization among organization. We are not a social club among social clubs. We are the red hot popping church of Jesus Christ. And when we cease to be that, we become something else. If you are not salt, you are of no value. You mind if I just work you for a couple of minutes? I I promise I won't do this too long like I've done at other times. Jesus was a Jew, and he was born a Jew, and he died a Jew. His entire worldview is shaped by two factors, Judaism and Galilee. So his faith and his hometown shape him. Above all else, in the time of Yeshua Nazareth, salt kept perishable things from spoiling. And I believe the true power in this metaphor is found in preservation. The preserving nature of those who follow Christ, us, we as salt, can be traced to creation and the fall. Genesis tells us that when God created the world, God looked at the world and said, this is good. Good, agathos, containing no bad. This is completely good. The world was good. The fall explains how sin entered the world and contaminated it. I think the best short theological statement for creation and the fall comes from Woody in the first Toy Story. Andy pulled the string and Woody said, somebody poisoned the water hole. And that is the fall. Who poisoned the water hole? We did because we're dumber than a bag of hammers. We've poisoned the water hole. And yet, the world is only contaminated. There is undeniably still good and beauty in the world. It's undeniable. I was watching the evening news last night, and they ended with about four quick hitter stories that were all positive stories. And I thought, this is so cool. What would it be like if if most of the news was positive stories and they ended with a little bit of negativity? I've got to tell you, there's still good in the world. And I see that good all of the time. The good is undeniably still with us, but, but so is the bad. Christians are to be the good, the preservative that keeps the world from spoiling. I want you to... Set with that a second. We're to be the preservative, the good in the world that keeps the world from spoiling. You see, our desperate world desperately needs the church, whether they think they do or not. Your desperate friends, family, neighbors, and classmates desperately need the church and Jesus, whether they think they do or not. Does that sound a bit salty? Exactly. And now he shifts to the second metaphor, verse 14. You are the light of the world. Again, this is not aspirational. He's not saying that light is what you should be, what you could be, what you'll one day be. This is a declaration of who we are right now. You are salt and you are light. That is who you are. 
We are those who declare the goodness of God to a world that is lost in darkness. We are those who show people the way to Christ. We are those who declare the good news of Jesus to a world that is hopelessly lost in sin. And in order to do that, we've got to start viewing people differently. I'm just going to put this right out there. You will never reach anyone for Jesus Christ if deep in your heart you think you're better than they are. When Jesus looked at the desperate people who gathered in to hear him, he didn't see a bunch of rabble. He didn't see a bunch of losers. He didn't see a bunch of people who were everything bad about his world. When Jesus looked at the desperate people who pressed in around them, he saw beloved sons and daughters of God who were temporarily lost and needed to be found. How might it change the world if we started looking at people who don't know Christ as people who are temporarily lost but need to be found? Some years ago, I bought a book. I was in the Smoky Mountains, and when I travel, I tend to buy books written by indigenous authors. And this particular book was relaying the accounts of search teams looking for people who got lost in the Smoky Mountains. And one of the big themes of the book is that people who are lost instantly undergo a change. You change mentally, physiologically, everything about you changes when you realize that you're actually lost and you become very disoriented. The disorientation happens quicker if you're alone and the longer you're lost, the more disoriented you become. In the book, they told stories about people they had found frozen to death after blizzards who had taken all of their winter clothing off. They told stories about people that they had actually found, but come to find out the people had been hiding from them because they were so extremely paranoid and disoriented, they perceived that those people were coming to do them harm. When I finished the book, something just occurred to me. Humans are lost easy and found hard, right? Humans are lost easy and found hard. Jesus stated his mission so succinctly, I've come to seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? We are. And then he says, a city on a hill glowing for all to see. We are a city on a hill glowing for all to see. So we are lights, but we're also a city. What if we began to think of the church as a city of lights? One of the things I love about Christmas Eve services is the candlelight piece. Now I'm always a little nervous from liability standpoints about the candlelight piece at the service, right? I was afraid maybe somebody used a little too much hairspray and we might have a couple of things go wrong. I mean, it could happen. And I'm always a little nervous kind of looking for that here and there. But I love the candlelight services because they turn the lights down and you have all these individual candles and then there's a point where everybody lifts their light up and it just illuminates things. We go from darkness to a collection of individual 
lights to light itself. Don't hide your light. A city on a hill. We are glowing for all to see. A city like Jerusalem is perched about 2,400 feet above sea level, but it's surrounded by area that's way below sea level. So Jerusalem looks taller than it is. But in antiquity, you didn't have electricity. At night, it was dark all the time. And, and the nights get really, really dark in Israel because there's nothing to fade the darkness out. And Jesus said, you are a city on a hill glowing for everyone to see. You didn't need that many lights in a city for that city to be able to be seen for miles after dark. One of the first songs I learned as a child was this little light of mine. You guys remember that song? This little light of mine. I would sing it for you, but I've been warned by Melissa to cut that out. <laughs> this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I'm always struck and increasingly struck as I get older how much of my theology was formed by those wonderful songs we sang when I was a kid. And one of the most powerful was this little light of mine. I have a light. You have a light. And when our lights all come together, we are a city on a hill glowing for everyone to see. Our light proclaim that there is hope in Christ. You see, you and I have been entrusted with this light by God to lead others toward Christ. To lead them, to lead lost people toward being found. To lead people out of darkness into the light. You see, you may be the only Jesus many people in your world are ever going to see. You may be the only invitation to church that a lot of people in your world are ever going to receive. And you say, well, well who am I? Who am I? Folks, when it's dark enough, you don't need a lot of wattage to show up just fine. Some of you may be in really dark places. I get that. You may work somewhere or go to school somewhere where there's no Christians at all. I get that. So for some of you, you may feel like you're there all by yourself. And Yeshua Nazareth would say to you, perfect, then let your light shine. Because everybody will be able to see it then. Let your light shine. You see, the hopeful part of all this is even a low wattage light shines brightly in total darkness. Verse 15. Don't hide your light, let it shine for everyone to see. I love fall in Southern Illinois. I love it. 30 days a year, we have the most beautiful weather in the country. 30 days a year. Quite tragically, there's a lot more days in a year than 30. But 30 days a year, we have the most beautiful weather in the country. So this weekend, Melissa and I lit our first little fire out at the cabin. We got a few sticks and pulled them all together. Let me tell you something. Lighting a fire these days is really easy. She buys me these little fire starter sticks, like from Lowe's or somewhere, and, and they're saturated in wax. I'm too impatient for even that. So I get fire starter and just shoot it right on those already wax sticks. I don't need a match because I got some kind of thing. You just pull a trigger, just a big long little blowtorch, shoot that on, bam! I mean, it just, boom, we're just there, lighting a fire, easy, easy, easy. Lighting a fire in Jesus' day, hard, hard, hard. And if you ever got a lot of fire lit, man, you're going to put some effort out to keep it going. 
You need to keep that thing going. In Jesus' time, households had small little lanterns. They were really small. They were made of clay. They got a reservoir, got a little hole. You'd pop a wick in it. You'd fill them with oil. And that was your light, your little light. And Jesus said, you don't want to hide that light. You want to put it on a lampstand. You want to get that thing up in the air so everyone can see it. Jesus took a common household illustration and said, hey, I don't want you covering up your light like you do on windy nights when you're afraid the wind will blow out your flame. I don't want you doing that. I want you to get that thing out. I want you to put it on a lampstand. And I want you to proudly proclaim that light and the hope that it brings so you can lead desperate people to me. So now we might ask ourselves a very legitimate question. What gives us the credibility to do so? Why should anybody listen to us? Why should anybody take us up on any invitation we would offer them? I think it's a fair question. And Jesus says, verse 16, let your good deeds shine. You know, the one thing a church does that non-believing people in the world, even God haters and church haters in the world, one thing we do that they understand and appreciate is good deeds. I mean, think about it. They really get that part of it. They don't understand why we tithe our income. They don't understand why we get excited about worship. They don't understand why we spend Wednesday evening studying the Bible. They don't understand that stuff at all. But the world respects the fact that we fill up the food pantries, that we provide furnishings for under-resourced people, transferring and transitioning into stable homes, that we collect backpacks for under-resourced children entering school, that we give scholarships to local organizations at Christmas time, that we send kids in Honduras and the Philippines to school, and I could go on and on and on and on. Good deeds in the community offer credibility to the witness of the church. They offer credibility. We do not exist to do good deeds. We exist to connect people with Jesus Christ. But as we do that, we're going to do all kinds of good deeds. Sharing faith and helping people are not either or things. They're both and things. They're both and. When we help someone in tangible ways and then invite them to church, we're shining some really high wattage light. So we're doing a food drive right now. We get letters at a regular basis that we're the number one contributor to the Fairview Heights Food Pantry. That's awesome. Thank you for bringing that stuff. And you might say, well, how does that connect people to Christ? It offers credibility to the community that when we do offer a witness, they are able to hear it and receive it. It's not either or. There are so many churches out there that only talk about Jesus, but they do nothing to help the community. And there are other churches, frankly, who do a lot in the community and they never really talk about Jesus at all. It's not either or. Christ Church is a both and church. We're going to talk about Jesus first. We're going to realize our mission is first and foremost to connect people with Jesus. But we are also going to roll up our sleeves and impact the world in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And then he says that your heavenly Father may be praised. I just want to tell you, when we reach out to the community, when the community sees that we are engaged, not just in the worship of God, which they do not understand, but that we are actually engaged in the transformation of the world. And when the community, even the God haters and the church haters out there, when they see a church that is positive and caring and united and generous and focused, when they see a church like that, lies are exposed by the light and negative stereotypes are vanquished and God is glorified. And that's why we have to watch it. As churches serve in the name of Jesus, darkness gives way to light. And all we are are a collection of lights and salt. I've picked up several of the Christchurch gear things out of the bookstore. And I've been wearing them a lot. First of all, they look great. But secondly, I've just kind of re-engaged with my love of sharing faith. You see, we went through so much in 2019 and 2020 and 2021. Our church went through culture wars. We, we went through a, a, a pandemic. We went through a disaffiliation from our denomination. We went through so much. But I've got to tell you something. Uh, somehow, in some way, it just all produced a revival inside of me. I love Jesus more than I've ever loved Jesus before. And I've got more passion for sharing the gospel than I've ever had in my life. And I am more convinced that what we have is good news than I've ever been before. And so I want to share that. So I like popping that Christ church gear on. I like it when I'm just telling people I am a representative of Christ first and foremost and of church second. Christ Church. I'm an ambassador. I'm a liaison. I'm a light. And so are you. And so are you. And that's why we've got to be careful that we treat people well. And that we don't post a lot of horrible things. And that's why we've got to be kind and generous. Because the world is looking at us. And we're the only shot it has. Jesus is saying, if we're not salt, then what is good in this world is going to be lost. If we are not the true church of Jesus Christ, then we will be corrupted and contaminated to the point that our chemical structure renders us something else entirely. If we put our light under a basket, how's anybody going to find Jesus in this world? Christ Church, we are not going to hide the salt shaker around here. We're not going to cover our gospel light just because it hurts the devil's eyes and he likes to scream and yell. It's just not how we're going to play it. It's just not how we're going to play it. I tell people all the time, I'm not backing down from anything I believe and I'm not in a bad mood either and you're just going to have to deal with it. We're going to stand firmly, unapologetically, compassionately, and lovingly in the immutable word of God. You see, this isn't just what we do. This is who we are. To minister to desperate people, you must not only be willing to offer hope, 
you got to be able to deliver on it. And we are not delivering ourselves. Because we are flawed and we are fallen. We are delivering nothing less than the life made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do not proclaim ourselves and our own goodness because we don't have enough to proclaim, but we proclaim the goodness of Christ. You are salt. You're what makes the world taste good to God. You're what preserves anything good in this world. And you carry within you a mark of God's divine nature. And your light, a light that people can see, that invites lost people to safety, and even looks for them when it gets hard to be found. This is our role in the church, in this world, and in this culture circa 2023. Sometimes Jesus loves on us and sometimes Jesus shoves on us. But as your pastor, I want to celebrate that I think we do these things really well at Christ Church. I think nobody does them perfectly. But I do believe that we do this well. Let's keep leaning in. Let's keep being the salt. Let's not compromise anything we believe and let's also be light and shine the good news of Christ to desperate people because that's what Jesus did and it's what he asked us to do well done Christ Church it's a joy to serve Jesus with you and I can't wait for all the wonderful things still to come would you pray with me great and mighty God thank you that you love on us and thank you that you shove on us And in the Beatitudes and in this teaching of salt and light, you're asking us to not necessarily do things differently, but to think differently. So dear God, would you renew our minds and our spirits? Would you give us the grace to celebrate the things that we do get right, rather than just to beat ourselves up every time we feel like we stumble and fall? To God, I pray your blessing And I pray your blessing with each witness that is offered. I pray your blessing with each invitation that is extended. I pray, dear God, that you would do your work in us so that we can be everything Jesus asked us to be. Thank you for this church. Thank you for what you have done here and what you're doing. And thank you for what you have yet to do. We are the church of Jesus Christ. What an incredible thing. And we pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen. As we worship, if you'd like somebody to pray with you, there'll be people at both sides of the sanctuary and up at the top. If you came in here heavy today, please give us an opportunity to pray with you. Let's stand as we worship Christ together.